going to start with a prayer to San Isidro. Here in Taos, my friends and I are part of a movement we call the Watershed Way. Our motto is, do unto those downstream as you would have those upstream do unto you. San Isidro has become our patron saint of the Watershed Way. And in the Catholic tradition, he is the patron saint of Asequias, farmers and laborers on the land. San Isidro, teach us to live like you did. Teach us to work hard, walk humbly, see angels on our shoulders, and joyfully share in our daily bread. Help us labor in such a way that our work helps our whole watershed and the whole world to live simply and with dignity. San Isidro, show us your path of simple living and place-based wisdom. Give us the grace to see God in the cool of the garden, to love our own places, and to humbly know our worth, to find the abundance that exists right here, and to overcome the temptation to always grab for the more and more. San Isidro, whisper in our ears, help us find labor that we enjoy, so we will not have to work a day of our lives. Teach us to work as if everything depends upon us, but grant us the deep peace that comes with knowing that everything really depends upon God. Remind us that the tastiest bread and the best communities are those that are achieved conjuntos, together, for all. Amen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Path to Restoration podcast. My name is Zach Martinez. I'm the pastor of Sojourn Mennonite Church in Greeley in Fort Collins, Colorado. Over the course of the next 10 weeks, I'll be joined by the executive director of TILT, the Taos Initiative for Life Together, Todd Winward, and the so-called High Priest of the Watershed Way, Daniel Rhino Herrera. We'll be discussing what it means to return spiritually and physically to a place-based way of life. If you're like me, most of what sustains our life is produced by other people, far away from where we live and brought to us through a vast international trade network. It's made life significantly more convenient and driven the cost of goods to historic lows. But this displaced way of being has also brought immense harm to people and the earth. In the Hebrew tradition, a displaced way of being was known as exile. For long periods of their history, the Hebrews were alienated from their land and from their labor, and they longed to return. The ancient prophets believed that God would restore them, and they encouraged their people with a recurring image. They would build their own houses and live in them. They would plant their own gardens and eat their fruit. They would dig their own vineyards and drink their wine an image of meaningful work, a stable environment, and a return to place. Theologian Norman Wordspa writes, To be in exile does not simply mean we are in the wrong place, which is a problem of location and logistics. It also means that the ways and manners of our being anywhere do not exhibit a harmonious fit, a problem of moral and spiritual discernment. 
I suspect that a significant portion of modern American life would fit this definition of exile. And I suspect that many of us feel a sense of longing for a different way of life, where we're more connected to the land we inhabit and the neighbors we share it with. But how might we do that? What might that look like? Todd and Rhino have been asking these very questions for years as they've tried to live in a more place-based way in Taos, New Mexico. Through this podcast, we'll learn about some of the steps they've taken to become more place-based people, and we'll invite you to consider what steps you might take to return to a place-based way of life. Following the release of each podcast, we'll be hosting a live Zoom session where you can ask questions and share personally about your own journey. For more information about how to register, visit taustilt.org. There you could also contribute to the ongoing work of Tilt, which, as you'll learn throughout these 10 weeks, is deeply meaningful. I'm glad you're able to join us, and I look forward to journeying with you this summer. Once again, I'm Zach Martinez. I'm joined by Todd Winward and Daniel Rhino Herrera. Welcome to the Path to Restoration podcast. Rhino, that's that's an amazing prayer. Some of the words and the phrases that really stuck out to me were phrases like simple living and place-based wisdom and loving our home places, finding the abundance that exists right around us, avoiding the temptation to always grab for more and more. So were you raised in this kind of tradition? <laughs> no, my dad tried to teach me, but I wasn't a very good listener. <laughs> No one listens to their dad. <laughs> right? So it, was, so it was part of your upbringing, but you wandered away from it? That's an understatement. From a young age, I wanted the more and more. I wanted the bigger life. I wanted to see what the other side looked like. I grew up in Arroondo, an unbelievably special place where everyone knew their another and families. I was the son of a police officer. My childhood friends and I remember when we called ourselves the Hondo Dogs. Not so much a gang, but about nine of us that grew up together, fished together, played cops and robbers together on our bikes. It's like little rascals or something. Right? We could roam <laughs> all over the place, but as long as we were home by sunset, we were good. Yeah. You know, I moved when I graduated Taos High School, I was about 380 pounds. I started to hang out with a bad crowd. Started using cocaine to lose weight, ended up hmm. strung out and on probation. Wow. Addiction played a big role in my life from then on. I experimented with oxy, shiva, heroin, until I found myself alone and in prison, mm-hmm. jail, treatment, loss of self, and Ooh. without faith and freedom. Mm. I found God in prison. The last time there, I was facing 26 years for drug trafficking and possession. And all I did was pray, and I didn't want to die there. Mm. I realized I have so much to look forward to, my familia, my madre tierra, mis rios, rosas secas, mi cultura. Hmm. So I made a change and chose to be clean and sober and be a leader in my community in a positive way to help heal other, others struggling with addiction and incarceration. So on the streets, they used to call me Rhino. <laughs> and that's when I brought to light the foundation and the organization that I'm trying to build. Rhino stands for rewire yourself and new opportunities. And that's what I had to do, Zach. I had to mm. rewire myself with new opportunities in order to continue to survive and thrive. So, wait, so speaking of like rewiring, so the, 
the nick you had a nickname of Rhino, right, right. on the street, yeah. and then you change you transform that, you change that. I changed that. Use the acronym the R Y N O to come up with rewire yourself with new opportunities. That's, <laughs> That's awesome. You know, living in a place like Taos, you know, that's changed so much. Hmm. And many people have moved here, put hmm. up fences, put hmm. up no trespassing signs. Or my father, my grandfather used to take us hunting and fishing and to look for arrowheads. Hmm. You know, when I was early on in my recovery, I met Dr. Gina Perez, who was working for Tri-County at the time, using her alchemy model for indigenous people dealing with trauma and addiction in rural communities. And after banging heads a little bit with her, she helped me to see all the great things that come in long-term recovery. Right on. And along mm. with my family and my support system, this is where I am today, almost seven years sober wow. and clean. And along that path is where I was introduced to Todd, mm. who has become more than just a friend or a mentor. He's like a brother from another mother. <laughs> Familia. Mm. We met... We talked, and he told me that he wrote a book, Rewilding the Way, Break Free from an Untamed God. I was blown away by it. It touched me in such a way that it made me look at life through a whole different lens. Hmm. There was a part in his book that really stood out for me. It went like this. First, station yourself at the deciding point between different paths. Next, ask elders and dig into the tradition for wisdom. Then, when you have discerned a right way to live, get busy walking it. Mm, that's mm. that's from the Bible, but I re reinterpreted it a little bit. But that ancient prophetic word to stand at the crossroads and look, ask mm. where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your days. Mm. But you found meaning in that, in, to talk to your own hente, your own wisdom people. This I, was a crossroads for you. It really was. I remember down at the Ojo, the hot springs, reading the book, my pages were all wet and stuck <laughs> together and it just popped out to me and it's, it stuck with me. Because mm. you were at a crossroads. I mm. was at a crossroads, yeah. And wow. that idea of the subtitle of my book, to, to break free, to follow an untamed God, you were breaking free from all those chains you had, both literally in prison and also what had been stopping you and keeping you addicted. Right. Wow. Mm. Is that... Yeah, when I, I wrote the book and uh, I was talking about Americans, middle class Americans thinking that, <laughs> what, that the good life and, and Rhino told me that you know, the same thing applied to the thug life, that it just mm. wasn't, <laughs> not all that glitters is gold kind right. of thing. Huh? Mm. Yeah, man, what a beautiful story. Seven years later, here you are. Yes, I am. Here we are. Changed. Yeah. What about you, Todd? I'd love to hear a little bit about how you came to be a part of this project? Uh, well, for me, I guess, compared to Rhino, I grew up being the good boy. I was grow grew up in a Southern California conservative Christian situation where I was taught three toxic teachings, at least. The, the first one is that heaven is not here, that somehow we have to be teleported to another place, that this world is evil or fallen. And instead of an earth-honoring Christianity, knowing that heaven is within our grasp, that bringing, bringing heaven on earth, it was that we got to get out of here. Mm. And so I didn't, I didn't value where I was at all. I was always looking to go somewhere else. And so that cult of hypermobility led me to the second toxic teaching that I was an individual 
alienated from community, that I had the right and the ability to just rip myself out of places and move to the next one, whether it was to go to school or if the property values dropped or if the water got sick, that I could leave. I was hyper, hyperly mobile. And uh, hmm. the third, I guess, would be this crazy thing we call capitalism and this toxic capitalism that goes so far to say that we can actually buy land and that we can buy ourselves into place mm. and that we can throw away whatever we want and that the world is our refrigerator it's our shopping center and it's our trash can that somehow my life was more important and not connected to these places and that there was no reciprocity it was just a buying and a taking so those three toxic teachings just left me in a place where I was so disconnected that I had to make a vow. I have to make this vow every day, this ferocious vow to replace myself, to be humble, to lay low into, and to care for all the watershed because it cares for me. Hmm. That's something new and different from the family I was raised in. Hmm. It sounds to me like what I'm hearing in both of your stories is this idea that you know, the good place or the, the home that we're always looking for is sometimes somewhere else. And I'm just thinking about that a little bit in my story. Um, I live in a, in a town that was founded in the 1870s by, you know, these folks from the eastern part of the United States who wanted to come out west to create a sort of Eden. And, right. and the way they wanted to do that was to carve this system of canals between two rivers, the Cache Laputer and the South Platte. And they would turn this sort of high desert into this sort of agricultural utopia. And what's interesting is they sort of succeeded. Well County, where I live, is the the only county in the top 10 most agriculturally productive counties in the country that's outside of California. And, they, and they did this because they could have a, an abundance of water from these two rivers. You know, but you fast forward some... 250 years later or something and we're sort of living with this vestige of what was kind of a hubristic project you know they wanted to use this water and now we're having to buy water from aquifers in wyoming and our land is parched to the point where last year the two largest wildfires in colorado history were actually burning at the same time and all across northern colorado people couldn't even leave their homes because it was covered in smoke and ash was falling like snow. And so now here we are, you know, some 150 years later, and I'm left to wonder, what, what does the watershed way have to do with us in Well County? How can we sort of return to this place and sort of hear those words, those things that you said, Rhino, like that return to Eden? How can this place be the sort of garden and the place that we invest in? Zach, the watershed way is, is really, I think, at its heart about getting back into right relationship. Hmm back into balance and maybe even radical right relationship, meaning to the root and these 150 years of terraforming this, this hubristic project you mentioned, the kind of the three toxic teachings that I uh, was raised in. These are not right relationship. Rhino's lust for more to go away from his home, to go grab the big life. These all feel like these pendulum swings gone too far one way and they all had their truth to them we all needed to go through those things they needed to happen but what's the sense of yours about how the watershed way in your life brings you back into right relationship i wonder
Hey, before we go any further, I want to I want to say some very clear and obvious things. This is colonizers work. This is us working through our own colonizing history and it's giving insight and our own wounds and our own suggestions of how we move through that. So hmm. so we we want to make sure everyone knows that up front. I also want to say something else important that as we newcomers engage in this work of becoming people of place in this particular place, we need to do so humbly, right? Mm. We, we need to do so on our knees with our palms open. We need to realize that we're guests here. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds right. And just reminds me of some of the, the anti-racism work that we've done and the, the, that it's the, you know, it's, it's incumbent upon people of uh, people who are white people who have white privilege to educate themselves and to do the work and not expect others to teach them right it's not yeah it's not yeah, the work of others exactly this is a this is confessional and atonal in in the mm. best in the best of what the church would call confessing this is a naming of our own sins this is a naming yeah. of our own need yeah. for reparation and restoration yeah so it's yeah it thanks for bringing that up uh, yeah. and connecting that to anti-racism Zach. yeah well i mean it sounds like this is the, that's the precisely the theme of this podcast right it's, right. it's the yeah. path to restoration it's the path to right relationship i think a lot of us who are beginning to see ourselves in this white privilege and are wanting to be on this journey we're all trying to get onto this journey so but for someone who is a privileged white person um maybe there are people who who own land and who think they have a right to be here right like, what does it mean to exist humbly or to exist as a guest? What does that look like? Yeah, like, yeah, what does it act humbly when you think you own the land? Yeah. Uh, yeah, what a dilemma. I want to address that. That's a great, because it's taken a while for me to believe it, but several indigenous friends of mine have told me that there is a way. Okay. And this, this is part of what we want to share today, that as long as we abide by certain conditions, the first peoples of this area do indeed welcome us. Hmm. It, it's taken a long time for me to accept that, but uh, one of my other hats I wear that I am a Mennonite minister for creation justice for the Rocky Mountain States region. And hmm. I've been tasked at times by indigenous allies in New Mexico to help that white guilt, hmm. to deal with colonizing spirits and to lead other newcomers through a pretty straightforward two-part process that they lay out. First, to authentically name and identify the ancestral damage, trauma, colonization, perhaps, exploitation, and cultural destruction to apologize for those things that might have been done by my forebears or your forebears. Hmm. And then number two, after apologizing and deeply naming that, to pledge to live right now and forevermore in an earth-honoring and Pueblo-dignifying way. For me, this is the path of restoration for a white male colonizer to get to right relationship. Hmm. Yeah. So, so that feels good, and it, you know, it feels right. But it also feels like a little small. So, is that is that it? Is that all? Like, like, like that's it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've asked, and they they do say yes, but you, but you have to mean it, right? You know, I guess because words are so cheap in our society that hmm. we might be like, oh, really? I can get off that easily, <laughs> right? But. For me, when I make that pledge to live in earth-honoring and Pueblo-dignifying ways, I don't get off easily. I, mm. I have to put that in action every day. I can't tell you, Zach, this, this seemingly simple process is like truth and reconciliation for me. It's turned into a process 
of transformation, I guess, of opening doors of healing in my heart, opening pipelines of generosity in my pocketbook. Again, mm. Like here's one example for me of how to live in earth honoring and Pueblo dignifying ways. Uh, my friend Miriam Naranjo from Teo Women United suggests that the following blessing should be said at the beginning of any legislative session or community meeting or church service or gathering of intention or, or a thing like this, that we'd say this out in front and this is how it goes. She says this, everyone here is walking, living and breathing within these sacred lands of Tewa peoples. Mm -hmm. Let us acknowledge where we stand and give thanks for the living mountains around us, the valleys, the waters, which sustain in our lives and form Tewa ancestral homelands. Let us ground our activities in the awareness of where we are. And may the mannerism of Pueblo peoples enter our lives and fill us with gratitude, fill us with love, care, and respect for all that is shared between us and all beings. May it be so. Hmm. And I, I've, I've had this blessing with me now, handed to me in a legacy like that, and it's been shared by many other people too. It's even been shared at the State House at the Capitol building is mm. where she, she did it out loud. Um, but New Mexico Interfaith Power and Light, the entire statewide interfaith organization, we use it. It's been really powerful for us in northern New Mexico and Pueblo lands. But I believe the spirit of this blessing could and should be adapted by anyone, anywhere in their own context, you know? Mm. And that's really powerful and it's really interesting I'm just thinking about it a little bit in my own context, because of course I'm, you know, quite a ways away from where you are. Um, right. But, you know, I, so I'm an I'm a avid trail runner, and so I spend a lot of time in places where there's some land that was once owned by settler families, and it's since been donated as an outdoor recreation area, or now what we might call public land. Mm-hmm. And that's great, right? It's but it sort right, of masks. <laughs> It sort of masks the reality that the fact that this land is has cultural significance to the people who lived here before us and that it was actually stolen from them. Wow. Yeah. So I do most of my training in this public open space called Horsetooth Mountain. And it was the land that was previously owned by three ranching families, the Sodabergs and the Walthans and the Harringtons. And so now if you go to this place, you can see all about these uh, folks who lived here and what all they did in Larimer County and somehow it passed from them to the county and when you go you see their names and you see the trailheads that are named after them but you see very little about the indigenous people who lived here and frequented the area before these three families oh but right signs and things are abounding about those guys oh yeah definitely yeah and there's there's, there's like some brief mentions about the fact that the horsetooth mountain was originally thought to be the heart of a malicious giant who was killed by a, a local chief um and as I've been sort of running in this area, it's really kind of inspired me because I've been reading about an indigenous trail runner and an environmental activist named Lydia Johnson. Um, and in the trail running community, she's been pushing for like representation from indigenous people and advocating for free race registration for indigenous runners. And she really likes to have t more targeted marketing for indigenous communities. But she's a huge advocate for land acknowledgments in trail races and in open spaces like the one I spend a lot of time in. And she says that this kind of acknowledgement, like the, kind of like the one that you just read, is an important first step for rectifying past harms. And so as we continue in this podcast, I just have to admit, I don't really have a relationship like you do 
with this person named Miriam, but I want to hear those words and I want to take that first step. I want to listen to indigenous leaders. What you just said about, yeah, land acknowledgement, that's exactly what she asked, is to Mm -hmm. acknowledge that we're guests here, that there were people here before who were living and breathing and that they want us to follow Pueblo honoring ways. So she sounds, Lydia sounds like she's saying that honoring native honoring ways here. Totally, Um, totally. Yeah, that we, this isn't just public lands or owned by the ranchers. (laughs) Right, right, right. Or the county or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking... You and I have a fairly similar context there, Zach, but Rhino, yours yours is different. Your context is a bit different from ours. Even though your family's been here for, for what, six generations? Yeah. Your ancestors were conquistadores. They were colonizers at the beginning who came here from somewhere else willing to kill the local people and steal land in the name of God to get that more and more we've been talking about. I'm wondering... how. How have you learned to seek right relationship with Pueblo people to build bridges or, or maybe to heal past wounds? Well, as you know, we grew up together, mm-hmm. side by side, mm-hmm. rode bikes, walked the dirt roads, made up games. Like you were together, one of, yeah, right. one of them, but yeah. You know, there was, it was a group of us growing up. But they held their culture and their ceremony tightly as well. Mm-hmm. There was a private side and a public side. We, were, sense, we yeah. were friends, amigos, but we were also people out past the cattle guard. Did, did you say out past the cattle guard? Right, out past the cattle guard. Hmm. Outside of the Pueblo Lawn, I mean. Oh, interesting. Okay. My, yeah. So yeah, my, That's like the geographical demarcation, right? Right. That public and private. There's two cattle guards that enter into the Pueblo, and they're still a part of our community. But hmm. Zach, the, also... Private, you can be educated on the Pueblo until the eighth grade. And so crossing the cattle guard is kind of a rite of passage into the public world, huh? Right. Oh, interesting. You know, so my people were different, but we were also from here. Hmm, yeah. Even though, we, even though we came to conquer, we quickly learned we had to surrender to the land and its ways. Yeah. Over six generations, my hand became tied to the land here to feel like we were bound to it in right relation. Hmm. We Norteños hmm. here in Northern Nuevo Mexico have a wonderful word, word, querencia. Oh, querencia. That's a powerful word. Why don't you say more? You know, querencia, the place from where one draws strength. Hmm. Querencia in Spanish means beloved or cherished place. It informs identity. It gives us a place of belonging for which we face the world. And it roots us to particular memories experienced in a particular geographical area. Hmm. Querencia is the place where we are at our best. Mm-hmm. A place from where we draw strength. A place from where we know exactly who we are. For a lot of us, it means home. Hmm. In the deepest sense of the word. Mm, for years, I've wanted that word. I've wanted to adopt that word. Querencia. Hmm. And, and I'm allowed to adopt a word. We can do that in yeah, English certainly. and use it. But can I get deeper and actually adopt a home? Hmm. This is, I think this is the dilemma for, for modern displaced people. At least it is for me. Dare I try to adopt a place? And then even more so, d- dare I believe that a place would adopt me? For me, I've been so displaced as a consumer-oriented, white, privileged 
professional who moved here from another place more than 20 years ago, I've been haunted by that question. Under, under what conditions do I get to call Taos truly home? Hmm. You know, that's an interesting question, especially, I think, after this past year during COVID, where we saw people displaced from the things that sort of tied them to a community like work. And then they were able to sort of travel all over the country because many people had the ability to. And they just were able to, yeah, 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 yeah. Cause they just, they were able to sort of like try different places on. Um, and it's, you know, it's like almost like outfits and they were never really able to become a part of the place. We had people here for months at a time and then would go back. Yeah. Bring it on. You're right. Yeah. And it's almost like just buying land like it was a Monopoly game. Mm, Right. I see it everywhere here in Taos. A piece of plywood has doubled in the past year. 44 Mm. bucks a board. And even the last week. Right. Right? Even (laughs) the last week. You know, almost all new construction, new people buying their dream homes, conquering and taking, but not surrendering, Zach. Mm. Unless people are very careful, it just becomes a new wave of colonizing all over again. Mm. And some of these people are actually sort of those liberal progressives who would hate to think of themselves as colonizers. Right? Mm. They come put up fences and there are no trespassing signs and we don't feel welcome anymore. Hmm. It's interesting because like as consumers, as people who are these displaced newcomers, we purchase things and sort of like make things our own but that's completely different than what you talked about you talked about surrendering almost like like we become like the land adopts us like i almost wonder if a place has to adopt us before we can adopt it yeah and becoming people of place not people of purchase yeah that's not in our conditioning but yeah the 20 years i've been here it's been about surrendering to what is hmm and so is that how you've been living into this question? And is that how you've been helping up people to try to do the same? I don't know if you guys have heard about Braiding Sweetgrass, a book by Robin Wall Kimmerer, but it's really moved me a lot. She puts it this way, that this, this, sorry, this invitation to replace oneself, meaning to humbly surrender to and be covenanted to a particular patch of earth, this invitation is open to all, to everyone. Mm. so everyone even someone who's an outsider who just moved in that it seems that's what she's saying that this is the gift that she kind of opens my heart she's a native person herself and she makes it clear that this invitation to become a person of place extends beyond indigenous nations to everyone who eats Mm. everyone who eats i like that (laughs) i guess that includes most everyone then exactly She reminds us that we all are children of this precious earth and the earth's teachings of reciprocity for all of us. Then she goes a step further and she just lays out this loving invitation that seems to come from somewhere outside of her, like from the very heart of an extravagant and loving God. Because she writes, she says, you right now can choose to set aside the mindset of the colonizer and become native to place. You can choose to belong. Mm. You can choose to set aside the mindset of the colonizer. Mm-hmm. You can choose to belong. I love that. Me too. Uh, these words have made me cry because they somehow stir that deepest hope of coming home, of cadencia, that word. 
But she also says something else you skipped over, Zach, in that she says that you can choose to become native to a place. Hmm. And th- those words, they they made me pause, I guess, maybe because of that that white guilt or that colonizer awareness. But to declare myself native, that goes too far. That that feels like a, a real overreach to me. Hmm. E- even though it is a native Potawatomi woman, she's offering the invitation to call yourself native to place. For, for me, it feels like this overreach because... I guess because there's Pueblo people living here who I'm right next to in the shadow of Taos Pueblo. They're still here and they've lived here more than a thousand wow, years. Wild. So the, the insensitivity or the arrogance I would display by calling myself native would, would to me be the worst kind of cultural appropriation, I guess. Hmm. To call myself native after a few decades of living here, I feel like it just put a gloss over maybe a race, generations of genocide and land grabbing. And it would almost devalue the centuries that they've, the kind of inconceivable endurance and cultural resistance they've had to do in the face of wave after wave of colonism, of colonialism and such, and conquest and people buying. Hmm. So native is not an identity you can claim. It doesn't feel right to me. Yeah, how about you? No, even after six generations, my family wouldn't label ourselves natives either. Hmm. Even though my people haven't learned to be married to the land, yeah, but that's that's why Zach, we've we th- we think there's something else that we can call ourselves. Well, well, I think there's another identity. What else is there? What is that? Well, we've been living in this in-between place, this awkward place of having a lineage of conquest and also wanting to surrender. So there's like between these extremes, we have these labels for the extremes. We call tourist or native or colonizer or conquest. But yeah, we think there's a third role that we call the role of naturalized citizen. But with that identity comes some conditions. Okay, this is this is really interesting. <laughs> We've been really down this path. Yeah, in braiding sweetgrass, Robin Walkimmer, she says that she encourages all of us, especially dislocate, dislocated people like us, to strive to become naturalized to place. Hmm. Naturalized to place. Yeah, yeah. I, that feels better to me than the overreach of native. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. It, it means you seek to truly feel at home in the place that you've consciously chosen. It's kind of like that adopting the word and maybe being adopted. Hmm. To throw off the mindset of the immigrant, she says. And for me, that also, as she's mentioned, the mindset of the colonizer. Also the mindset then of the tourist or the Mm. visitor, the voyeur, the speculator, to throw off the mindset of like to be a consumer or an exploiter or a purchaser, or like a bargain hunter. Hmm. It means to come to the land with respect. Like Hmm. my ancestors taught me, to come with open hands, ask permission, to say thank you for the harvest, to come with a desire to share and show up, rather than a desire to exclude and extract. Mm -hmm. and then so for me that becoming naturalized a place means to relearn what it means to be in rooted right relationship with a place and all that it contains so instead of playing our usual role of unconscious irresponsible consumer to be naturalized citizen that means to choose to be a conscious and contributing person 
Kimmerer says, being naturalized to place means to live as if this land is the land that feeds you. Mm. And if these are the streams from which you drink, it's funny how we pretend they're not. <laughs> right. These indeed do. Yeah, I mean, this sounds like something I can get into. Not native, but naturalized. Yeah, it's amazing how, like, it feels fresh and good to me. Yeah. Uh, after living in Taos as long as I have, I'm not just a visitor. It's become my place. I, I claim this watershed because I've also been claimed by it. Hmm. It's my home. It's my place where I feel Corencia. It's here where I live and breathe and I have my being. It's here where unknown ancestors I never met, I know, have helped me and built the infrastructures before me. Yeah. It's here where unknown descendants will give thanks for my presence long after I'm gone. Here is where I want to live out my days, plant my corn, make my mark, grow my garlic, take my stand. And so my love and, and here I will leave my legacy for better or worse. I just love what Robin Wall Kimmerer says in, in her book, to become naturalized is to live as if your children's future matters, <laughs> to take care of the land as if our lives and the lives of all our relatives depend on it because they do. Mm. But, but there's a catch. <laughs> I want to tell all you newcomers who are buying all the plywood <laughs> for their new homes, you can't become naturalized to a place without being transformed. Oh, yeah. Mm. Despite what the American way and out of control capitalism tells us, you can't just waltz in and place and think it's okay to grab every resource, yeah. <laughs> assume every privilege, and assert every assumption and demand every comfort and exert every arrogance. Exactly. Mm. We can't just bring our old shopping selves, our untransformed real estate selves with us to a new place and expect to be embraced as is. Mm. It's sad that we don't know that. It's sad we have to tell ourselves these things. But yeah, kind of like Rhino's generations before him, we have to get down on our knees for a while, I think, in the earth. Hmm. So, so for you guys, what have you, what have you learned on this path? What, is it, what does it take to become a naturalized citizen of a place? For that, we look to our federal government, <laughs> U.S. citizen uh -huh. and immigrant services. Okay. <laughs> When, when Robin Wall Kimmerer introduced the term naturalized citizen to me, I talked to Rhino and we looked at the website, uh, the U.S. website about immigration. Okay, we learned that yeah. there are, anyone who wants to become a naturalized citizen of the U.S. must meet eight criteria for acceptance. Mm. So we took those same eight criteria and applied them to becoming a person of place. Okay. So it was kind of fun to like lay side beside and look at our website and what it meant for the national Hmm. Uh, allegiance and we we found that someone who wants to become a naturalized citizen of a place a person who wants to call a chosen place home must do the following eight things and they're very very similar to what's on the website so i'm going to read them out all right okay so first you must commit to the chosen place as an adult not okay. just be an unconscious kid who moved there which is just like what they require of a visitor who wants to become a naturalized citizen in the u.s hmm. second we need to learn and follow the laws of the land. U.S. Constitution would be the national equivalent, but to know the laws of the, of the bioregion. Mm. Number three, to maintain a continuous presence in that place. You got to be a sticker, not a visitor. Number four, you must show a basic literacy of and obedience to the local language and customs. Number five, 
demonstrate good moral character, staying in right relationship. Number six, demonstrate an understanding of the place's history. Hmm. Number seven, demonstrate loyalty to the best interests of the place you've chosen. And lastly, number eight, you must take an oath of allegiance to this place that you now call home. Hmm. Well, and that's a lot to chew on. (laughs) (laughs) A few phrases uh, from your list that really jumped out to me. What does it mean for you to demonstrate an understanding of a place's history? Or what does it mean to stay in right relationship or to show good moral character? And and to demonstrate the loyalty to the place you've chosen? Yeah, for, for me, that's exactly the work I was talking about earlier with Miriam Naranjo suggested uh, what she said, you know, to, to name and apologize for the ancestral damage and cultural destruction from done by my forebears. And second, to live in earth-honoring, Pueblo-dignifying ways for me, this is the path of restoration to right relationship. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds right. And there was another phrase that stuck out to me too. It was that last one. It was, it, what might it look like to take an oath of allegiance to the common good of a place and commit to the best interests of like the region that you're choosing to call home? Ah, now you're talking about something close to my heart. Zach. Okay, what's that? Well, we're back to where we started. The watershed way. Okay, but in, so wait, does the watershed way have like an oath or a pledge of allegiance or something? It's a vow, actually. <laughs> we renew it every year. Okay, like a secret society or something. Let's let's hear it. What? Right now? Yeah. I'm not going to give you all the gold away at once. <laughs> what? <Wait>. Okay. <laughs> we still got four more podcasts to oh, go. Okay. But... Okay. <laughs> Maybe next time. Maybe next time. I'll close with a few words from Martin Shaw. He says, and that's the task, isn't it? When you sink into a community and a place. To live a life that nourishes the whole village's children's children's children. I think it might indeed be the task of our time. And also, it's the invitation of our age, as Todd said, to set aside the mindset of the colonizer and choose to belong. Shaw also writes, to be of means to be in, all in, to have traded endless possibility for something specific. But remember, if we dare to claim a sense of home, to claim a sense of cadencia, we need to remember that we must also be claimed by a specific and particular place. That sounds pretty good to me. Tune in to the next episode of the Path to Restoration podcast, which will be released on June 14th. You'll hear Rhino's vow of the Watershed Way and how you might want to make it your own. I want to thank Todd and Rhino for joining me today, and thank you, the listener, for joining us on this journey. We have several weeks to go, but I hope you'll continue alongside us. I also want to thank Ray Metzler for the music. He's a wonderful gift to me and to our congregation, so thanks, Ray. You can and should learn more about Tilt at taustilt.org, but for now, here's a little snapshot. The Taos Initiative for Life Together, Tilt, is a place-based incubator for personal life change and systemic change founded by Todd Winward. They're based out of a 13-room fixer-upper adobe in the heart of Taos, 
and work with the larger community to enhance their local food economy, protect their water, teach their children, reduce waste, build intercultural trust, and learn to live more with less. In the footsteps of Gandhi and St. Francis, they try to be the change they want to see and help Taos be the county they want to see in the world. Tilt's Wisdom Council includes Melanie Baca, Angie Fernandez, Daniel Rhino Herrera, and Randy Martinez. Thanks again for joining us. This has been the Path to Restoration podcast.